you know, we had a particularly large B'nai Mitzvah class <laughs> hmm. around the time, which meant I had to go to a lot of bar mitzvahs. And this was around the time I really started loving classic rock and I really started detesting pop music. And those environments were just the worst for someone with Asperger's to be in because they were loud. They were playing the music that didn't make me feel uncomfortable. You're surrounded by girls. I didn't know how to talk with girls. And I felt uncomfortable. And I had to go to the bathroom a lot just so I could like be on my phone so I could be away from the loud music. And it was not fun. And I had to keep going to that multiple weekends. Hmm. Not fun. I just wanted to play my video games. <laughs> Hello, welcome to Square Pegs Podcast. In this podcast, we share first-hand experiences of neurodiverse graduate students and faculty members. I'm your sometimes guest host, Lexi Hain. And I'm the host, Arik Zaghi. Our guest today is Hayes Brenner. He is a PhD student in psychological sciences at the University of Connecticut. His concentration is ecological psychology, and his research interests are music cognition and autism. Give it a listen. Hey, thank you very much for accepting to do this. I was really excited when you expressed interest. Let's start by going over what you're doing now at UConn, a little bit about your PhD work and how we got to know each other. Yeah, so I am a PhD student in the ecological psychology department. I am working on research related to rhythmic entrainment and modeling that. So the way I typically explain it to the layperson is just, you know, when you're listening to a piece of music and you start nodding your head and you start tapping your foot, why does that happen? You know, it, it doesn't have to happen that way. And so, you know, that's the foundational stuff. But then more specifically, it's like why some rhythms are easier to tap your foot to than others. And you can actually model that mathematically using oscillators, which are equivalent to, you know, groups of neurons firing at specific rates. And when they all get hooked up together in a network, you get sort of these emergent patterns that can resemble the stimuli and rhythm. So that's kind of where my research is at. It's a little bit more complicated than that, but that's the that's the basic gist of it. And, you know, as part of being at UConn, I got involved in a neurodiversity fellowship called Transcend, and we had you in to discuss neurodiversity in academia. And, you know, I mean, we'll get into this, but, you know, I, I identify as being autistic and I was willing to speak up about it. And you're saying, hey, I have a podcast about neurodiversity, but we don't have any dudes with autism on there. And I'm like, I'm a dude with autism. So now we're here. Good. So how is your research related to autism at the end of the day? Good question. Yeah. So right now I'm kind of finishing this modeling paper, which isn't focused on that. But what I'd like to do is to sort of transition to looking at differences between autistic and neurotypical populations when it comes to rhythm, perception, and reproduction. Because, you know, you're seeing these uh, differences in social entrainment. So, you know, rhythm doesn't necessarily have to be exclusive to the music domain. It can also exist in social domains. So, for example, like, let's say two people are walking together. One person walks kind of fast normally. One person walks kind of slow normally. But when they're walking together without intending to, they just walk at the same speed. But I remember when I was a kid, I wouldn't do that. I would just like barrel ahead. So, you know, those are the kinds of entrainment differences that I think are really interesting. Is that like synchrony? Yeah, yeah. We can think of the, those as, as kind of synonymous. There's differences, but, you know, you know, so for example, like, you know, if you're doing modeling, right, there's this parameter you can use like called, you know, coupling, because when you're synchronizing with something, you don't have to be exactly right. If you think about clapping along, a bunch of people are off a little bit, but you're still synced up. And it seems like the band of entrainment for autistic individuals is just a lot narrower than it is for people. But, you know, does that apply in music performance rather than just like in the social domain? Because, you know, a lot of people on the autism spectrum show really excellent 
musical skills and if nothing else, just really deep musical appreciation. Uh, I include myself in that. But, you know, it's kind of this idea is like, does improvement in rhythmic entrainment on the musical domain, does that generalize to other areas? And and music and, and dance therapy is already used in some areas in autism therapeutic services. But, you know, I'm, I'm curious to explore that from more of a general research perspective. Nice, nice, nice. That was very good, actually. It gave us a very good idea. I learned a few new things. Going back to your childhood, we want to kind of go chronologically, review some of your experiences as much as you're comfortable to share. So why don't you start by telling us some distinct memories that you have from your probably elementary school years, good things, bad things. I mean, your unique assets that you were aware of, or you can look back and say, oh, that was a very unique thing that I was doing as a kid. Yeah, I had a very uh, (laughs) interesting, to put it one way growing up experience, you know, to start way, way earlier, you know, I was born in the mid 90s, and I was diagnosed in the late 90s. For the time, it was very, very early. And yeah, I was specifically diagnosed with PDD-NOS, which stands for Pervasive Developmental Disorder, not otherwise specified. Later, it seemed more likely that it could have been categorized as Asperger's. That's no longer a categorization. And, you know, so now I just say, like, I identify as being on the autism spectrum. So already, it's kind of weird with the identity aspect of it. You know, especially now that like Asperger's is no longer official diagnosis and also other people have talked about like the, shall we say, to put it mildly sketchy aspects of Hans Asperger, the guy for which the disorder is named after. But I digress. So I was diagnosed and the prognosis at the time was bad. You know, there there wasn't as much known about autism then as it is now. Like there wasn't a knowledge that like, oh, hey, like you can be okay. You know, it's not like a death sentence. You know, a lot of I mean, I'm sure it depends on who you talk to, but in general, the the prognosis was like, it's not good. Likely you'll end up in a mental institution, you know, might need services the rest of your life. Did your family share that with you? They did eventually when I was older. Oh, when you were older. Yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll get to that. It was kind of an interesting process of disclosure about it. But anyway, I'll speak openly about it. You know, ABA, Applied Behavioral Analysis, was a therapeutic option at the time. Right now, it is extremely controversial with a lot of the autism community. I don't think we have time to go into like the nuances of it, but the gist of it is that it's using operant conditioning to kind of drill into kids like how to behave normally. One way that's controversial is that in some ways it is effective, but in other ways it's very harmful. There's variation in how it's implemented now. Sometimes it can be implemented with a lot more progressiveness, with not punishing, no adverse stimuli, you know, less emphasis on normalizing someone. That was not the case when I was growing up. It was tough. It was like 40 hours a week for weeks on end before I was like six or seven. Very intense. Uh, The story I can think of that's probably like the most intense was that, you know, I was an extremely picky eater. You know, I wasn't eating well. I'd eat like chicken nuggets and hot dogs with mustard and not much else. Mm -hmm. My parents were like, oh my God, he's not malnourished. We need to encourage to eat stuff. So I remember I do have this memory of being at a restaurant and there were these like alphabet hash browns. They were like hash brown shaped letters of the alphabet. And I was like, I don't want to eat it. Parents like, you got to eat it. And, you know, they were so intense about it. And like, I just couldn't eat it. And eventually like I threw up, you know, it was kind of like that level of intensity. And there was another memory where like they tried to get me to eat broccoli and like I threw up because like I just, I just couldn't do it. It was like a lot of drilling, you know, like stimming. Yeah. You know, I mean like one really controversial aspect about it is like stimming, right? You know, so it's like self-stimulating behavior mm-hmm. that was kind of like conditioned out. Like the goal was to kind of make someone appear normal. It was kind of tough. Now you're looking at retrospectively, but when you were going through it, were you bothered by that or that was the life you were living? 
I think it was a bit of both. The reality is like it was so long ago that my memories of it are kind of fuzzy. I was so young when this was happening. Like this was like, I think before I was six. So, you know, I don't, I don't remember a lot of it super well. I think it was probably a mix of both. Actually, like a crazy story that kind of also shows like, I just thought it was normal was that I went into school initially a year late because I wasn't, you know, I hadn't like developed well enough. But apparently like... <laughs> When I got into school, like I was just answering all the questions mm. <laughs> so fast. And they were like, okay, he needs to go to the grade he's normally supposed to be in. So then I jumped up. My parents were still concerned. So they had a therapist join the school as a quote unquote assistant teacher. So I just thought assistant teachers were like a normal thing. You know, every school had them. But really it was just the therapist my parents had hired to like keep an eye out on me. It was just posing as that. So I wasn't like, oh, look at the adult following me around. Mm -hmm. So I think that kind of shows that like some of it was I just thought kind of normal. But I mean, this extended later in life is just like there were certain things where like I would just get stressed out by stuff that other people didn't seem to get stressed out by. And it did seem kind of weird. I do remember just kind of feeling like flustered a good bit. Certain periods where like I would get overwhelmed or really frustrated. I, know, I guess it just did seem kind of normal. I don't know. Mm -hmm. And any hobbies that you were obsessed with? Video anything? games. Hmm? Video games, Video like games. just obsessively. I just played them all the time. I talked about them all the time. That's all I, that's all I really cared about. You know, I do remember a story of like, I was at a friend's house and you know, he had GameCube, he had Sonic Adventure 2, I think. The one that has the song begins like, escape to the city, ah, da da da, oh yeah. <laughs> um, and I just kind of wanted to play that. He wanted to play outside and we had a fight about it. Like, I just did not want to play outside at all. I just I just wanted to keep playing video games. And I still feel bad because, like, he got in trouble for it when I was being kind of obstinate. I've apologized to him about that because I think I was being, you know, kind of hard-headed. But still, like, I just... You I still just, play video games? I do now. It's, it's a lot healthier. Because, mm -hmm. again, at the time, like, I didn't want to talk about anything else. How many hours do you remember? Oh, God, so many hours. I mean, eventually my parents kind of limited me, but, like... And, you know, I, I talked with, you know, an old therapist of mine. Her opinion on it was that it was kind of an escape for me. I see. You know, this is a bit more psychoanalytic. This isn't based on data, but, you know, it's like the world out there is kind of chaotic. But, you know, video games kind of gave me a sense of control, I think. They're naturally kind of engrossing and fun. And, you know, at certain points, kind of addictive. A lot of the feedback of video games is supposed to be kind of rewarding. Although now I think it's actually a lot more salient, but that's a discussion for a different time. And like, I still play video games now, but it's a lot more like I'll play for an hour or two. And then like, I kind of want to do something else. There was a while I kind of like stopped playing in my teenage years because I know I felt kind of embarrassed about it. This is also around the time where I started feeling kind of isolated because the kinds of games I were playing were different from what other people were interested in. Mm -hmm. I realized like all the things I were interested in, like people just didn't really care about really it. They care about that. Yeah. And, you know, at times it started getting like particularly isolating. I mean, not just with video games, but then later with music and film. I grew up in a place where sports were really big, and I just, you know, I didn't really care about that as, as much as everyone else did. But, like, I couldn't really find people who were interested in the things I were interested in. That really had a very negative effect on me because it was very isolating. So you wanted to mingle with kids and... I mean, I had issues with dominating conversation, just only talking about what I wanted to talk about. That was something that I we worked on a lot. I think part of that's just, like, a family thing because... What makes all this interesting is my parents are so socially adept, my dad especially, but my mom as well, like a couple of standard deviations away from the norm. I really had to learn to like be a better listener, make room for the other person, be, you know, talking about the thing they're interested in. But like, I was only interested in just talking about the things I was interested in. But even with all that said, like, 
I just couldn't really find a lot of people who shared the same interests as I did. How did you do academically? Pretty well. You know, everyone's talking about like, oh, I don't like school. I remember thinking like, wait, I like school. And I mean, that made me very lucky. You know, I was not like the single most exceptional student, but I liked learning. You should bear mentioning that, you know, I've been an extraordinarily lucky and privileged person. I went to school that was of a good quality where I got, you know, I mean, depending on the teacher, <laughs> yeah, you know, some teachers are better than others, but in general, like I was a bit of a teacher's pet. <laughs> like, you know, I wanted to do well in school and I liked learning, you know, especially math. I loved math. Occasionally I'd even do math problems for fun, but you know, learning was rewarding. But, you know, the social environment in school could be could be tough at times. Do you remember a teacher that you loved? Yeah, I mean, Mrs. Johnson was like an English teacher in third grade. What was it about her? I don't know. I think she was just like, was really positive around me and really liked me a lot. and was encouraging. I don't know. I think she was, you know, just kind of made me feel good. Mm. But, you know, my memories of it are a little hazy. You know, I can remember specifically a teacher in high school that I particularly liked, but... I couldn't really tell you. So middle school age, those years. I went to school that ended in ninth grade. So middle school for me was kind of like sixth to ninth grade, which is kind of weird. Or seventh, ninth grade, I guess. I remember like I had my bar mitzvah. Actually, yeah. So some tough things emerging around this time was that, you know, I, I, was, I was Jewish and I was in a, not like super small, but like a moderately sized city town of about like, 20, 250,000, 300,000 approximately. And so there was a small Jew, like a size, not like a super sizable Jewish community. It was small, but you know, it was like pretty compact, like all the Jewish kids knew each other. So there wasn't a lot of us, but you know, it was kind of the expectation, like everyone goes to each other's bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs. And you know, this is like 12, 13, so middle school time. And you know, we had a particularly large B'nai mitzvah class <laughs> around the time, which meant I had to go to a lot of bar mitzvahs. And this was around the time I really started loving classic rock and I really started detesting pop music. And those environments were just the worst for someone with Asperger's to be in because they were loud. They were playing the music that didn't make me feel uncomfortable. You're surrounded by girls. I didn't know how to talk with girls. And I felt uncomfortable. I had to go to the bathroom a lot just so I could like be on my phone so I could be away from the loud music. And it was not fun. And I had to keep going to that multiple weekends. Hmm. Not fun. I just wanted to play my video games. <laughs> I can laugh about it now, but yeah. uh, you know, I talked to my mom and she's like, I'm really sorry I did that because yeah, that was a little overwhelming. In general, do you consider yourself an introvert or extra? That's a good question. I've gone back and forth on that a lot. And I mean, I think the honest answer is I think I'm somewhere in the middle because I'm definitely not a true blue introvert. And we'll get to this later as I have reckoned with like what it meant to be on the spectrum and how like there's individual differences. I didn't have to like fit perfectly into the mold because normally I saw like the stereotype of an autistic individual was like introverted. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, well, I like talking with people, so I'm probably an extrovert. But then I was like, okay, introverted doesn't mean that you don't like people. You know, almost all people enjoy mm -hmm. being around other people. It's just a matter of energy draining and then i thought oh certain social environments are definitely draining and then i'm like oh well i'm extroverted around my friends and then introverted around people in general and i thought that feels like a gross oversimplification because strangers do for the vast majority of people tend to be kind of a stressful experience and then also like people around my age do trend more introverted than previous generations so i realized like it's a very complicated thing and then of course i was like oh yeah you could be an ambivert right yes it can be situational I grew up in an environment that was very extroversion focused. 
So I think that definitely changed my personality. Like, Both my parents are huge extroverts. And, you know, I put a lot of pressure on myself to be extroverted when I think in the past I would have rather just like done my own thing. I think I'm somewhere in the middle. I lean a bit more towards introverted. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is around the time that the disclosure happened? Yeah. So I actually, I can remember it very distinctly, which is that I was 14 and I was playing the Prince of Persia remake on the Xbox 360. And we had a thing called Playroom and I was playing that. And then my parents were like, hey, we need to talk. They sat down and they explained that like, they didn't specify later the PDD in OS. They specifically said I had Asperger's and that I had gone through therapy. And, you know, at the moment I was, I was like, okay. And then I just went back to playing video games. Cause like what they did, they hadn't told me until I was 14. And the rationale was that it would have like gotten into my head and I have mixed feelings about it, but I think they had a point because later I really judged myself very harshly for that, for having it. What changed after that? Well, the short version is like I went into ninth grade and I, it, it was an absolutely miserable time. And I went through one of the hardest times of my life, but um, I'll get to that later. Well, it's just interesting because like I was thinking like, should I be surprised? And I both was and wasn't. I was surprised because you know, I was doing okay. Like I had friends and, you know, I was like still, you know, doing well in school. I mean, they explained to me like, you know, if you had Asperger's, like you could still have high intelligence, but a struggle socially. But then I kind of thought of like all the meltdowns I had had, you know, I was so single-minded about a lot of things. And then I was like, okay, this is actually kind of starting to make sense. And then also like how sometimes it just felt weird. Like, you know, it's like, why am I into things that other people just don't seem to be interested in? Hmm. Did you read about that at all? Uh, I would go on the internet, but like also around this time, like, you know, occasionally like ideas of Asperger's were starting to get into the mainstream. I see. But I started to feel very weird about it because like, I think a lot of portrayals tend to be kind of stereotypical. Kind of think of the whole like Sheldon from The Big Bang Theory. This was later, but like in GTA 5, a character was called like, you know, Asperger-y. And he was just like, kind of like a horrible caricature of that. And that made me feel kind of uncomfortable. I just wasn't really sure how to feel about it because there's some aspects where like I kind of fit into it really well and other aspects where I didn't. I didn't really realize at the time that, you know, everyone with autism is different. The stereotype was like the emotionless robot kind of stereotype. I was like, well, I feel emotions and like I express emotions. But what I didn't realize is like it's just expressing differently. I was, you know, doing okay. I could have friends and, you know, I could communicate certain things and I was able to like go to school and get good grades. Although then what happened is I entered ninth grade and, you know, I went to a very small school and for the ninth grade thing, you know, about half the kids dropped out. So it was only a class of like 35 or something. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize I really only had one good friend at school. One good friend where like I could hang out with them and we could routinely just be like, oh, hey, like we talk about things. And then he left and then I was like, oh, I don't have any friends. So there was a period of time where like I didn't have friends and um, I started getting bullied. I didn't really think of it as bullying because I thought of it as like, you know, getting beat up. And I know some of the things people had to go through weren't as bad as what I had to go through. But then I was like, that still doesn't negate that, like, not just for, like, being socially awkward, but also for being Jewish. Mm. You know, there was this kid who would, like, make Jewish jokes and laugh at me and, you know, sort of take advantage of my naivete about certain things. And it was really rough. And, like, I didn't really have anyone to turn to. You know, I didn't have any mentors who went through the things I was going through. And yeah, like I started getting really depressed around that time. Hmm. It was extremely hard. I was very isolated, really sad a lot of the time. Um, it was hard. But you maintained a good academic performance. I think I did okay still, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, that's what I was good at and that's what I knew, you know. I think there is something there, so I want to go a little deeper. So again, going back to the label that you now knew about, what you're studying is not too far from like, how human cognition works and how we process information. So 
I want you to kind of give us your opinion because I have mixed feelings about if it's a good idea that we are using these labels or not. I have serious troubles with the whole medical model. Some people, they say like, no, those are descriptors. So we need to be able to use those descriptors so we can provide the necessary support. What's your sense? I mean, yeah, well, I was kind of thinking like, oh, someone gets diagnosed and then they feel bad about it. But the vast majority of stories were people who were relieved because people realize like, oh, it's not my fault. Part of it was just like, I was just, I was like seriously depressed at the time. There was just a lot of self-blaming. It's like, you know, oh, I'm such an awkward person. Like, oh, I'm this, I'm that. But, you know, I think, I think that negative aspect was a lot more due to the fact that the world around me wasn't a good fit for me. It was mixed because like in some ways it was so privileged, but, you know, it was like Southern, you know, sports obsessed. That's not good for someone who just wants to like talk about indie rock and and weird esoteric games like that's not a good fit for (laughs) for me but then i'm also like well is that a good fit for like any kind of nerd well maybe not really 15 was like that was starting to be a very formative time when i started really kind of exploring other stuff at the time for me personally i really did want to belong i wouldn't have said it like this but like i wanted to fit in socially were you working hard towards it? Yeah, I was. Like, I was looking back on it. I think a lot of the culture I was surrounded by was very unhealthy, especially in terms of like male expression. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a lot of like Southern fratty kind of ideals. I was sort of like, oh, I should aspire to be like that. And now I look back and I was like, why would I ever want that? But simultaneously, like, the things I liked, it's not like I was wanting to listen to like Florida Georgia line. No offense against them, but. <laughs> So, you know, I was kind of like stuck halfway in between, but like I started seeing like guys like sort of take on kind of like a chauvinistic attitude. And it's like, well, is that how I'm supposed to be like, well, okay. But then when I got to college, I had huge culture shock. It's like, oh no, no, that's really bad. And I was like, oh, what am I supposed to do? And then I like had to decide for myself. It's like, oh no, chauvinistic culture is really bad. I'm trying to posture for something that I'm effectively not and I'm being disrespectful towards other groups. And that's really bad. I really just start trying to like comport myself a certain way. But like I was being in these social groups that just were very different from the kind of things I was like interested in at heart. But I was still like doing that to myself. I just started putting so much pressure on myself. And around this time, like I was really trying to learn to be funny. Mm. Around this time, I started noticing that, you know, I can't act cool or I can't act normal, but I can do these outrageous things and people will laugh and then they'll pay attention to me because otherwise I was just kind of shrinking into the background. And then I was started like, okay, well, like if I can't be normal, I'm just like really lean into the craziness of it all. And then it get better. I went to a different school. So a lot of experimentation, right? With different... Yeah, I really like I was experimenting with how to mask. I wasn't really like thinking about it this way. Mm-hmm. But some of it was like, well, you know, I'll like change myself in a certain way to like, but like still kind of stay true to myself. But, you know, a lot of it was self-imposed, but some of it was just like an environment in which I wasn't going to fit in, which led to me kind of trying to force myself to act a certain way. What would you change if you go back? I don't know. I mean, it's kind of impossible to say because like knowing what I know now very much came from those experiences of forcing myself to be a certain way and realizing in the long term how that wouldn't work out. You know, I'm very happy to say that for the most part, I'm generally pretty comfortable with myself. That took a lot of time and a lot of self-reflection and a lot of effort and a lot of unlearning. Unlearning of what? What I thought it meant to have a happy social life. I thought if I'm going to be like a normal presenting member of society, then I have to, you know, like go to the parties and, you know, have the charming banter and be the life of the party. And then but like looking back, I was like, are you kidding me? No, like you don't have to do any of that. What I was exposed to, like I just set such a high standard that it was, it was going to be impossible to meet it. Uh, and I didn't realize like, oh, hey, like it would be okay to like 
have a, like a, a social group where all you did was just talk about video games. Like I started rejecting video games. Part of it was that there was a culture shift around it with like Call of Duty that I didn't like and that sort of put me off from it. Like when I started listening to music, I was kind of thinking, well, like everyone likes music. That's kind of an easier thing. Even I'm going to be obsessed about it. Like it feels like a more like normal thing. But even then I was getting into like indie rock. But then like, you know, hip hop was the big thing. So then slowly and surely I, I was like, well, maybe I should start listening to this. But then I actually did start liking it on its own merits. I mean, I was listening to a little bit of what was popular, but then I, you know, I discovered a tribe called Quest and then I was like, oh wait, I actually really, really like this. This is really kind of cool. And, you know, beforehand I like really didn't like it because my exposure to it was like what they were playing at bar mitzvahs, which is just such a tiny sliver of this, you know, huge and vast genre. With music in general, you know, I was like such a classic rock head and, you know, my opinion was like, if it was made after 1994, it was crap. But then I got into electronic music a little bit. But then like, I really started like expanding and get out of my comfort zone. I think as I started getting older, like when you're on the spectrum, you tend to want to stay in your comfort zones a lot. Not only when you're on the spectrum, all people do that. Yeah. You know, especially on the spectrum, you have very specific routines because it's like a stressful world out there. You know, a lot of things, I almost hate to use the word, but like, I mean, I don't really have meltdowns anymore, but that's because like I've developed coping strategies. But like when I was a kid, I had so many meltdowns, right? Because it's like if things are too hectic, like you can't deal with it. And your only way of responding is just to like scream and like freak out. And, you know, I would sometimes do that with music if like I couldn't have control over it. And like I have mixed feelings about it because like, you know, my opinion of it is like I do think we should push ourselves outside of our comfort zone. But like not go too far in a video game if you're like exploring outside of your hut right if you go too far out you'll get killed but like if you explore a little bit and where it's safe like otherwise like you're not gonna progress as a human being but you know people have different comfort levels but, but that can be confusing for some people they think they have to push themselves out of comfort zone in areas that they have zero interest in yeah exactly so that that's cool to push yourself for example if you are into music to push yourself explore what is your like physiological limit cognitive limit but not necessarily that like if i'm not a sport fan i mean like i push myself just memorizing names and mm -hmm. like scores and things like that to be able you know so that can be confusing for some people these two notions of pushing yourself that's a good point let me rephrase that so actually talking about if you could go back i would push myself you know intellectually but then I realized like socially, I, I didn't have to push myself that yeah. hard. That didn't really do anything, but just make me miserable. But you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. But yeah, for like certain people, it's like, you know, pushing yourself, you gotta push yourself in the right ways. So I'm, I'm, am I listening that you're not pushing yourself anymore? I mean, just- No, no, okay. no. I mean, if I'm pushing myself socially, it's on my own terms. I mean, I'll put it like this. If I was pushing myself socially, I probably would have gotten like finance bro job <laughs> on Wall Street or something. Mm -hmm. I was like, no, absolutely not. I want to be like an academic, just studying stuff. If I'm doing something socially, it's because I want to do it. You know, if I'm going to concerts, because like I want to see the band, even if sometimes crowds make me a little nervous. Mm. It's like, because I want to see the music. But like now I'm at a point in my life where it's like, I don't need to do that. When did you come to this realization? I was just tired. I see. You know, I may realize, like, I was just like, what am I doing? So when I get to college, right, like I go to parties and when I go to these like really crowded parties, like sometimes you couldn't even move. It's like, oh God, I'm not having a good time. I should drink more. So I drink more and then it's like, oh, I'm not having fun. I should drink more. Horrible cycle. And eventually I get too drunk. But then it's like, when I'm too drunk, it's like, I'm not having a good time. And I should have taken a step back and realized like, well, what if you just don't like this environment? Yeah. That's an example where I was like just pushing myself too hard. And I didn't realize it was making myself miserable. Yeah.
And that's true across the board for neurodivers because they have stronger feelings about different environments. Just the assumption that everyone needs to like everything. We we have an idea that there's a normal person that is okay with everything and mm -hmm. enjoys everything. And I, I don't think that that person exists. We all like things and don't like things. And uh, again, for neurodiverse people, that might be exaggerated a little bit and we have yeah. to make room. Yeah. Eventually I was like, oh, yeah, I, I just wasn't having fun. Mm -hmm. And I realized I wasn't having fun. And I was like, I should just live life on my own terms and do the things that actually make me happy. It was kind of like slow and sure, but just kind of when like it started solidifying when I was just like doing my own thing a lot more. And I suspect that that helped your mood and happiness. Yeah, I mean, in general, there were other struggles I was facing. So let's not skip the high school. Oh because, yeah, well, yeah, so. I mean, I will say relatively as a uneventful 10th through 12th grade. Ninth grade is when it was like really tough. And then I went to new school and it got better. It was still a small school I went to, but like eventually I found a friend and we could bond over music and he was also like a huge nerd. I did well in academics. I wanted to get into college. I studied really hard, but I generally was cool with studying. But you know, I was still surrounded by certain kind of social groups that kind of veered me a certain way. That still make me kind of sad sometimes. But in general, I was just a lot more focused on like going to a good college and getting a good job. And then, you know, I go to college and I'm like, oh my God, I'm free. And you know, this is when I started like kind of acting a bit silly and crazy. And I kind of thought like I had mastered the skills, right? Like I was a quote unquote normal person, even if I was kind of silly. Hmm. And then I'll skip the details, but I <laughs> I started doing things and people started acting a little bit weird about it. And then I started realizing like, oh my God, I'm still coming off as, as kind of weird. And then there was this moment where I was like, oh wait, I don't know if I can actually like pretend to be normal. You know, that was a realization where it was just like, oh sh. And then, of course, like there's all the other stuff with college, like you're living on your own and you're trying to manage things. The fallout from like when I was 15, when I was really depressed, it was also still there. You know, I was so lonely and so isolated. And then I was like, I feel like I had to work so hard to like maintain friendships. But like, I still never felt like I was part of a group. Yeah. And I worked really hard to try to be part of a group, but it never solidified. So I still started feeling isolated. So that residual stuff kind of like still carried on. And I was still trying to like, be a part of social groups when I would have been a lot happier doing stuff that was more aligned with stuff that would make me happy. Yeah. And I feel very weird saying this. I wanted to join a fraternity. My dad was in one. And I was surrounded by that culture a lot. I thought like, oh, this is cool. Like, you know, you go to parties and you're friends with people and like, you know, you meet girls and, you know, it's kind of like this effective way to like have it made. Mm -hmm. When I go to these events, I don't know if I would admit it, but it's like, no, you're, you're out of your element. This is not you. But then what happens is a fraternity started up uh, that had gotten kicked off and they're like, we need members. And I was like, well, I'll join. So I was in a fraternity. In some sense, it was really lucky because it started up. It was kind of all the people who didn't fit with any of the other fraternities. And, you know, for the most part, it really was a good group of guys. Like, I was like, OK, this is my identity now. And I kind of like put a lot of energy into it. But then like kind of from junior to senior year, I was like, wait, what was I doing? I was like, I should have spent time like in like a music record production club or. So you were just striving that sense of belonging. Yeah, which is what a lot of people face. But I think yeah. for me, it was particularly salient because I never really felt like I had that. You know, because I remember even within the fraternity, there were like different subgroups of people. And I just kind of float in and out of a bunch of them. But I never really like had a sense of belonging there. And then like, you know, people would like get together to like share apartments and that never coalesced for me. So I was always just living on my own. So I was still feeling isolated. And so that was still really tough. And that was also around the time I started realizing, like, okay, I probably have, like, depression and anxiety. What do you think can solve that problem? Part of the problem is, like, a lot of these feelings, you know, I thought I was the only one going through them. 
I only later realized that like these issues of loneliness were actually like very widespread. I was just in an environment where like I wasn't exposed to a lot of it. You know, people probably were just better at hiding it. Did your parent being extremely social enrooted this value in you that like, oh, that is what belonging means? I mean, that- yeah, I, I don't think they wanted to do that explicitly. I mean, I think that's what I took with it. It's everyone's fault and it's no one's fault. But it wasn't just my parents. It was also like the social environment I grew up in. And that sent some like confusing messages to me. I think the biggest thing is just like, if there's something I really wish I had, I wish I had like a male role model, someone who had kind of gone through a situation similar to me. Well, tell me you're okay liking these things that you don't have to strive for these things. Yeah, It'll actually make you a lot happier if you don't strive for these things. This is making you miserable. Would you listen to a person like that? Hard to say. Never had it. Not really. I did have role models. My dad in general was like a pretty good role model, but like someone who was like on the spectrum, who had gone through the specific things I had gone through. And hopefully by you now sharing your stories, the next person listens to this and it's like, oh, maybe I can think exactly. that. Exactly. You know, yeah, that's, that- I think that's, now that I think about it now, I think that's a big reason why I'm doing these kinds of things. I don't want people to have to go through what I went through. And I should clarify, in some ways I had it like extremely lucky. I had a stable household with loving parents. You know, they weren't perfect, but they still gave me- But you me- are paying your dues. I mean, by being here doing this. Yeah, you, know, you made it and then you're paying forward. Well, in some ways I was I was really lucky and grew up in a really privileged environment. In other ways, it was really hard. And I don't want people to have to go through the stress I put on myself. So then end of the college year, I suspect that academically you were performing well and um, no problem. I, <laughs> I mean, I was doing engineering at a very tough school, so. I didn't know that. That you were an engineer. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, originally I was going to do electrical engineering. Then I wasn't really passionate about it. Let's stay there. Tell us what yeah, you like. So I will say, so also something that changed from like 20, 21, 22, is I started getting more like intellectually focused. I didn't really grow up in a very like intellectual environment in the sense where it's like, oh, hey, you can learn these like really deep philosophical ideas. I was kind of exploring these things on my own. Because I will say, like, especially with things like music, a lot of it was just like, I spent a lot of time on the internet. You know, and so like a lot of it was me just like exploring these things and figuring out stuff on my own because no one around me was like into this stuff. So I kind of had to find it on my own. And then eventually beyond just music, it started being with like film and books. So I really started getting into film between junior and senior year. I kind of started thinking, okay, like what do I really want to do? And though honestly, I realized like the whole reason I did electrical engineering was like secretly I kind of wanted to design guitar pedals. Before 15, I was like really into video games, a few other things like The Simpsons and classic rock. And then I started transitioning to just being completely obsessed with music, unhealthily obsessed. I had really started liking music intensely when I was 11, mm-hmm. but then I kind of like, it was balanced with video games and I started phasing out video games. And I had also like really liked old movies around that time as well. But then that kind of went away a little bit. I, at one point I thought I'd be a film director. I really want to be a director, but I didn't have confidence in myself to do. I couldn't really find a friend group to make movies with. And I started getting in my own head about it. So it was not about the way engineering was being taught or your classes that this guy just said your interests shifted or you realize that that doesn't take you where you want. What was about engineering that you didn't find yourself in? I think the only D I ever got was in circuits one. That was a tough class. That didn't help. Like in general, my grades were okay. They weren't stellar around the time, but also like the engineering degree was like really hard. I don't know. I guess I was kind of like, okay, what are like my job prospects from this? But also like, I think I was just getting a little overwhelmed with the degree. Starting in high school, I started getting interested in psychology. And I think it was especially because, oh wait, there's a science behind behavior, something that I didn't intrinsically understand as well as other people. I thought, oh, you can learn about this. You can study this. 
you can create laws and rules behind this. So when I did AP psychology in senior year of high school, like something kind of started clicking. And then when I get to college, I always loved math. And I was like, oh, I kind of want to do something with math or science. In high school, I had a really great physics teacher who also did an engineering elective. And I really like that. It's like, oh, you get to apply math. That's amazing. So I was like, oh, I'll do that. I guess I just didn't find it as fulfilling as I thought it'd be. And then I kind of realized the practicalities of like how you'd apply it in a setting. And I kind of thought, I don't know if this is for me. But then I thought, oh, what if I could do something like mathematical with psychology? And then I thought, well, what if I could do like autism research? That would be really meaningful. So for a summer, I did do some autism research and that was really cool. And I was like, well, I got this math background. And so then I switched to doing engineering science, which is kind of more of like a general engineering degree. A lot of people yeah. who do that wind up in consulting. Yeah. And I was like, well, I don't want to do that. But I had enough credits to like get some kind of engineering something. And I thought, well, I'll just tack on all the psych credits I can do. And then I was like, you know, music's the thing I love. Let me do something with music. I got a music tech internship. That didn't turn out to be as fulfilling as I thought it would be. And then like very randomly, I started really getting into like movies, like international movies. It started filling me with all these like really intense philosophical ideas. So like these are movies like, you know, Akira Kurosawa or like Federico Fellini, sort of classic art house stuff. And I was like, okay, this is sort of the nexus of all things. Like, like you know, this is technology, this is philosophy, this is entertainment. And I thought like, oh my God, films have such this power to like change people. I was starting to think a lot more like philosophically and existentially, kind of about like, I have one life, you know, I might as well do something interesting. And also in the back of my head, I thought like, if I could make a film related about autism that could kind of give a different perception of it, as I was getting more comfortable myself, I was like, I was tired of like the kind of very one note performances of it. I kind of thought, well, like I'm in this very unique position where I can make that happen. So then I was like, screw it. I'll try and be a filmmaker. Was income any part of this equation? Worrying about, okay, there will be a huge uncertainty about your income. You knew that you were going to make it no matter what. Well, at the time I thought, oh, well, you can actually make like a decent income in film. And I thought in the music industry, it's like, well, there's not as much money there. So, I mean, that was part of it. That wasn't like the basis of it. But I remember thinking like, oh, like, you know, if I start and work my way up, like I can still get like a job. But then when I moved to Los Angeles, like the work wasn't nearly as consistent as I thought it would be. I thought about maybe going down the sound engineering track, but I was like, no, like I'm going to be a filmmaker. And then when I get there, it's like, oh, I have to do Instacart to like support myself. And I was like, okay, this isn't as glamorous as I thought it would be. And then the same problem still emerged. I couldn't really find like a friend group to make movies with. I did wind up making three short films when I was out there. I'm proud that I was able to get that stuff done. Two of those were from, you no, know, one was from a competition and one was like a project to help a friend with. You know, one short film is like, no one told me I had to do this. I just did it. I was motivated enough by like my ideas to like express myself. Cause I was like, oh my God, like I'll be a director, you know, like I'll be writing and directing my own things. I'll be like a Jordan Peele or Chris Nolan or whatever. But like that space is so rarefied now. Yeah. Like I could see the economics changing with streaming and, and now with AI. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, that's the whole reason why the writers went on strike with that and the actors are as well. But you know, like even before the AI, it was just like the kinds of films that are being financed and made, like, you know, with streaming being a thing instead of theaters being a thing yeah. and like the culture around it was changing. And more than anything, though, like I was like, this isn't making me happy. It was just like filming stressful. You know, you have a schedule, but like you're always off schedule and like you have to manage a million different things and there's a lot of egos. I got screwed over a couple of times. And I was like, I hate this. This sucks. Like the worst was like, so you know. So this was after your undergrad. So yeah, I graduated and I moved to Los Angeles for two years to try and make it work. But like people would say things would happen and then they wouldn't happen. And like, it would just cause me so much stress. You really abandoned everything technical and you went 
after your passion. Yeah, you well, I mean, I was also like, well, cameras are technical, you know? Yeah, like, you okay. can learn about, like, focal lengths and, and ISOs and things like that. But I don't know. Like, I kind of thought, like, oh, like, you know, like, I thought about the films that I love the most and how much they impacted me. I was very idealistic with it. I thought, like, you know, films have the best way to, like, insert certain kind of philosophical ideas that can let people really, like, actualize themselves. Uh, you are not wrong on that, uh, for sure. So how did you find that industry in terms of open-mindedness, neuroinclusivity? They tend to be more welcoming of crazy thinkers, right? Is that what you found? Sort of. <laughs> I think another really positive thing, very slowly since 15, like I tried to hide my autism diagnosis for a very long time. I was like, if people know about this, then they will judge me. They won't like me. You know, if I'm being really blunt, the environment I was surrounded by was, you know, very much like, for lack of a better word, hookup culture, right? Like, you know, it's like, oh, who's got with who? Like, I mean, just teenage stuff. Like, but you know, I could, I didn't have that. What kids would call the riz these days. <laughs> but you know, I was like, oh, if I tell a girl I have Asperger's, then like she would want nothing to do with me. She'd think I'm like gross and weird. I would tell close friends, and at some point in college, I started being a lot more open about it. And then I mostly found like people didn't really care nearly as much as I thought they would. And I realized like, oh, if they do care, then that's on them. Because, like, I'm still me, and they're still going to look at me normal. And if anything, they'll probably be like, oh, that explains why he, like, did an unusual thing or whatever. But to go back to the question of, of in the film industry, I mean, in some ways, yeah. But, like, the problem was, like, it's just, I mean, my experience is it's just, like, a lot of egos. Yes, there probably is more acceptance for people with, like, weird stuff. But then, like, on a film set, time is money. And even if you're doing a project for free, people have very limited time. So you're just constantly trying to get stuff done. And I tried working as a, as a first assistant director on a no budget film. And this guy definitely was like a bit on the weirder creative side, but he also was like a narcissist. Not always a narcissist, he, he was a habitual liar. I don't know, he wasn't very nice to me and he wasn't nice to a lot of other people. And also it's like, you have to work with a lot of people. Tensions can run really high on a set. And when people work together, it's beautiful. I think the reason I was getting really frustrated is like I was working, but like I wasn't getting paid and I wasn't getting job opportunities like I thought I would. So it wasn't what you thought. It wasn't what I thought it was. And I wasn't really like making good progression like I thought I was. And I realized like, oh my God, my career aspects are so tenuous here. And also like just with my own conditions, like this is just like so much maximizing stress. And that was a point in my life where I was like so single minded and I was like, I can do this. I can do this. But then I was like, this isn't making me happy and this is, I'm not going to be able to like reach people like I thought I would. I'm not going to be able to reach people in the theater like I thought I would. And like most people are only interested in these kinds of things anyway. People are caring about movies less and less. And if they are caring about things like they're caring about entertainment like they always have. So I started getting kind of cynical about it. But yeah, I think the thing that was like hardest for me was like you were told you'd have a certain opportunity that wouldn't happen. I was going to do a filming gig for a film festival. Oh, yeah, like we're going to, we agreed we're going to pay this amount of money and you're going to do these kinds of things. And they're like, no, actually, we're going to pay you on like a per project basis. And there's no guarantee you're actually going to get any clients. We're just going to offer your services. And I was so frustrated that I was like, I'm not going to do this. And then there was another time when like I joined a temp agency because I wasn't getting any work. And they're like, okay, well, you're going to work at this VR company. I was like, I have the job, right? And they're like, yeah, just show up to training. And so I show up to training. And then I saw the schedule and I wasn't at any hours. And I was like, hey, you know, where are my hours? They're like, oh, no, we'll get in touch with you. And then they're like, oh, no, they're actually not moving forward. And like, I cleared my schedule for this. And so it's like, I can't handle this. But like, that kind of thing happens all the time. So in that sense, it's very much not friendly to neurodiverse people because like, it's just opportunity and then it's gone.
no stability. There was like no stability in that sense. It's not very friendly. I, I think a lot of sense it was really just it should it was just luck. I even when I had the connections, like the luck just didn't work out and the opportunities didn't present themselves because I had some good opportunities. Like I got an internship with the guy <laughs> who runs a production company that like makes the Smurfs movies. Mm. Uh, he was actually a very nice guy. I thought after that, it's like, okay, like I'll get like a agent job and nothing. You know, in the 90s, there was like an American indie market that emerged that made things like a little easier. I mean, there still is one, but like there's just not nearly as much money in it, right? And even then, like you had to deal with like Harvey Weinstein. Ugh. Speaking of predatory, ugh. even on like, you know, that no budget film, I was like, like that still felt incredibly predatory with that guy, even though there was like no money in it. Because he was just like charismatic and he got people to work with him for free. But like he was a dick. And so I was like, why am I working for you if you're not paying me and you're just acting horrible to me? And the film's not even that good. So it was a guy named Jordan Kerner who produced the Smurfs movies. He produced the Mighty Ducks. So he had his big heyday in the 90s. The last big thing he did was like the Clifford the Big Red Dog movie. So he does like a lot of family friendly stuff. And I thought, oh my God, that's my in. And even with that connection, opportunities still didn't emerge. I was just like, what the f*** am I doing? That was a fun journey to LA, and let's come back, talk about, okay, then how did you start thinking about grad school? That's a 180 turn, so. Yeah, well, you know, I had done psych research in undergrad, but then I was part of a lab. I didn't, I kind of like lost focus with that, and I started getting into the music stuff, so then I took my weird path. You know, I remember the day that like I lost that VR job. I was really sad. You know, speaking of like things that like I'm doing on my own terms to be comfortable, there's an electronic musician I really like, Tycho, and he was playing downtown LA, and I had already gotten a ticket to it because he was doing a DJ set. But with clubs and stuff, it's it's sometimes a horrible, horrible, horrible experience because the music's loud and the drinks are overpriced. But for me, it's like, are they playing music I like? And if the answer is no, then it's a miserable experience. But if they're playing cool music, then it's a lot of fun because it's like, I'm not chatting with people. I'm by myself. I'm just closing my eyes. I'm listening to music on a really good sound system. I'm like, this is actually really cool. It can still be overwhelming and like if it's too crowded, then it's like, I don't like this. But to this day, I will go to a club if it's like I have space and I can close my eyes and listen to music on a really good sound system. That's really interesting and not just like stuff that I think is really annoying. I was like, what am I going to do? At that point, like I got fired and like I, I quit the film business. Like I need to do something else. I was also going through roommate trouble at the time. I was really depressed. I was really anxious. It's hard to make friends in LA. So I was really lonely. So it was not a good time. But it's like, I still have tickets, so it's like, I'm still going. Because like, what else am I going to do? Like, I'll feel miserable tomorrow, but like, I'm just going to go out. So I go, and then I start talking with someone randomly, and I'm like, oh, this is happening. I'm sad. And then she's like, well, what are you going to do? And I'm like, I like talking about things that I think are interesting. Why don't I be a teacher? She's like, yeah, you go do that. Okay, I guess my next choice is to be a teacher. <laughs> and I thought, what do I want to teach most? And I thought, math? And I was like, maybe. And I thought, well, psychology, that I find really interesting. And I thought, you know, I kind of want to teach at a collegiate level. Maybe I should be a professor. I didn't initially want to go back into research. And I was like, well, if I want to teach on a college level, I need to like go back to grad school and at least get a master's. But in order to get back to the grad school and teach stuff, I should get more research experience. And my mom had a connection at UNC Chapel Hill to do neuroscience research on autism. And while that was still, again, unpaid internships, ugh, noticing a theme, it was still like an opportunity to get out of LA and kind of like get my life back on track. And then also it's like, I realized there was still purpose in doing autism research. And then like, I got a mentor and a guy named Dr. Shen. And the thing was, he gave me a lot of confidence because, mm -hmm. you know, I was like, I'm not sure if I can do this. And I showed him asked him one day, like, do you think I could be a good scientist? And he's like, yeah, definitely. I'd write stuff up and he's like, this is good work. And I think part of that like gave me confidence going to research because he's like, you're doing good work. Like you're thinking 
like a scientist. And while it's not like the most exciting thing, I was like, okay, there's still stability. It's more stable than in the film. And I still find this satisfying. And then I realized, oh, if I'm doing autism research, this gives me some kind of meaning. And then when I was applying to grad school in the midst of the pandemic, I thought, well, if I'm going to do research on any one thing that I find most passionate about, it would have to be music. And I thought, what if I could combine those two? So then I was lucky to get into this music lab. And then I asked, can I do music and autism research? And my advisor said, yeah. So while my focus is more on music, I am making that transition to autism research. And, you know, I don't think it's going to like change the world or stop climate change or anything like that. That's an illusion that a lot of younger people have that they can be the one that they can solve that grand scale problem with poverty or global warming and things like that. A lot of people are confused by that. And my advice is just think about little problems. Even if there is a need for people to go attack that problem, we still need to solve these tiny problems. And that is the surface of what I say. I believe if we solve those little problems, those bigger ones go Yeah, go definitely. One of my favorite books is called Cloud Atlas. I, you know, there's a movie based off of it, but it has one of my favorite quotes. Without spoiling anything, a guy ends like, I'm going to be a good person now. And someone's like, you're an idiot for thinking that. Any good action you do can be undone in like a second. You're just a drop in the ocean. And the last line of the book is, what, what is an ocean but a multitude of drops? I realized with autism research, and I started realizing this as a kid, I'd start seeing all these autism PSAs and, you know, promos and advocacy and whatever. And I'd see parents talking about it and I'd see practitioners talking about it. And I was like, where are the autistic people? Am I crazy? Like, what's going on? There's no autistic people talking about this. Like, where are the stakeholders here? Where are voices? The same for dyslexia. There is no dyslexic person being in writing intervention, if you think. <laughs> yeah, autism varies so wildly in, in terms of phenotypical expression, right? Instead of high functioning versus low functioning, I think high impact versus low impact or profound versus non-profound autism might be a bit better. Some people may need services yeah. for the rest of their life. Yeah, I understand. For other people like me, like we can go about our lives. And for a lot of people, it's somewhere in the middle where like it impacts you. And, you know, some people with autism like don't have the capacity to speak up. It was like, there's still people who want to speak for themselves. I think another really big thing that changed is the neurodiversity movement became a thing. And there were a lot of self-advocates. And, you know, there were people saying like, hey, that thing you went through as a kid actually was kind of bad. Like more generally as like a culture, right? It's like nobody made an effort to accommodate you. You always had to accommodate yourself or everyone else. And that's not always very fair. There's some aspects of autism where, you know, the meltdowns or the self-harm where it's like, there's no aspect of that where that's good. But then there's other aspects where it's like, I'm so passionate about the things I love. And then it's like, I'm supposed to put that aside? That's bullshit. <laughs> yeah. Like, why the f do I have to do that for someone else? I was like, well, that's ridiculous. Why do I have to accommodate? That's completely ridiculous. The conversation definitely is not a balanced conversation when it's just like so focused on deficit and challenges yeah. and all of those things. And there is a segment of the population that they need services. Absolutely. Yeah. But I think we can mitigate some of those challenges by just focusing on the strengths. Imagine, for example, if if someone when you were 12, I mean, had realized some of your intense passion towards certain things and said, okay, let's work on this project together. Or like, you like music, let's do this together. I'm sure you wouldn't feel that depressed that age. So the thing is, we think by propagating this kind of deficit-heavy narrative, we are supporting kids. Mm -hmm. I think is harming kids. Absolutely, yeah. It should be about empowerment, you know? That's true. And I mean, while still acknowledging that, like, there's issues that come up and it sucks yeah. sometimes, and you know? Uh, who is in the world that doesn't have issues of some sort? It is unfair to think about 
these populations as the ones that they only deal with issues. They mm-hmm. only deal with anxiety, depression. Yeah. <laughs> and, and also, if like you're telling the whole population, it's like, hey, there's something wrong with you. I mean, there's this whole campaign where, you know, it's, we have your child. He can't speak. It's autism. How's that supposed to make us feel? Good? It's insulting. Dehumanizing. Um, yeah, I think that was the thing that made me feel the most weird is like, people would be like, oh, uh, people who are autistic, they're not even human. Like, yeah, like we express ourselves weird. I have a question. But... Are you controlling certain things or you're genuine? This is this is you. This is something that messed me up for a long time and it still messes me up. No, just during the conversation. Just, just during the conversation. Well, this, this was relevant for the conversation, but just in general, I can't always tell because I spent so much of my time trying to learn and comport myself a certain way. At a certain point, I couldn't really tell if I'm just like putting on a mask or if I'm being my genuine self. I started noticing that in college a bit. But my sense was extremely genuine. I yeah, I, I will like say what I, what I do now, what I do now is like, even if like some of that was resulting from me spending so long trying to mask myself, I try to be genuine now. The reality is like I comported myself in a way where I had to accommodate others. I think if I was really being myself, I wouldn't have any kind of voice modulation. I just kind of do that naturally now. Because the problem is, you know, I was kind of taught again, it's like, you're speaking too loud, you're not being aware of reading the room and whatever. Those are the kind of things where like I have to comport myself a bit and like I probably always do it so much I don't even notice it. I'm trying to like apologize less for just ranting because like I rant a lot, but that's okay. I don't have to feel that's bad who you about are. that. That's who I am. I listen. I leave room for the other conversation. That's fair. I apologize for it, but I shouldn't apologize. So I guess the short answer is as best as I can, I haven't been masking and I try not to be. But the sad thing is that I've spent so much of my life masking that I think it has affected who I am genuinely. But what I do now is if there are parts where I mask, it's trying to be the positive aspects where it's like I'm more considerate of other people's comfortableness and, you know, making the other person feel like I'm paying attention to them, which are objectively good things. And that's a social aspect of my dad that I've actually really admired is that he's an incredibly good listener and he makes the other person feel acknowledged. Mm -hmm. And that's a very hard thing to do. And so I try and do that. The thing I definitely try to do mass is like try to be funny. So instead of just being like, ah, and I, I was a lot more just like, oh, let me be witty. Mm, let me doth quote the poets. I asked these two questions from all of our guests. The first one is, what is your piece of advice? What wisdom you want to share with 12-year-old kid out there? Two things. First, it's okay to be alone sometimes. Mm-hmm. I think this is actually more for my 15-year-old self because mm-hmm. that's when I think I was really struggling. It's okay to be alone sometimes. You don't have to feel obligated to be social in the way that you see everyone else's. It's okay to do it on your own terms. It may not feel that way, but it's okay. You will probably have more fun than like being in a crowded room with a bunch of drunk idiots. And also, I think a big thing that took me a long, hard time to learn is resilience and not having learned helplessness. And that's something that you kind of only develop with time. You do look like a, uh, like a resilient person. I both don't like the experience I had, but I'm also grateful for them because it did make me a much more resilient person. You know, if you're in the right environment, going through hardship can really help you. Yeah. If you're in the wrong environment, it can break you. I think the only difference was I had a supportive enough environment. As easy as I've had it in some ways, I've had it really tough in others, but I was able to do okay. You know, I think when I was 15, like I gave up easily. I tell them it's not easy. You're going to have hardships, but you're tougher than you think. Yes. And how about your college age self? When you were confused about what you want to do with your life, maybe you think of that time. Maybe the same things. Would you suggest that go explore or you would suggest be more calculated? Do more music related things. I did do music related things. I play guitar now. I learn drums. I made. Am I hearing follow your passion? 
You know, it's weird because in some ways I'm really grateful I didn't. At first, I wish I did. I thought about the music industry as it exists now and just seems like miserable. I think considering my personality, I don't know if it would have been the healthiest thing for me because I have an idea of what it would entail. And I think there would be aspects that would be incredible. But I think about like the traveling, the lack of stable income, you know, especially having be to another film COVID. situation. Yeah, it, it very easily could have been that. I'm probably happiest just occasionally dabbling in music without it having to be an obligation. Yeah. Although I would have definitely told my 12 year old self, it's hard, but make it a hobby. Don't make it a career. Really oh, do wow, it because you love it because it's so rewarding. Keep it a hobby. Like don't do it out of an obligation. Sometimes hobbies become your career. Sometimes. That can be a double-edged sword sometimes. Why? Because I think about it with music is that if it's a career, then you have to come up with music. And what if you just don't feel like coming up with music? Like when I was thinking of filmmaking, I was thinking like you're on the set and you're like directing and you're writing and you know, you're making all these creative decisions. But what about all the times you have to go out and fundraise? What about all the times you have to go talk to the press? Like those are the parts of the job that you don't necessarily think about that can really, really suck unless it's really worth it. And I also just didn't think about like the stress, the stress of having to coordinate things always going wrong. Everyone's looking up to you, you have to make a million decisions and you don't have enough time. And then if you're in a band, you have to lug luggage everywhere. You have to worry about logistics and traveling costs and getting COVID. <laughs> oh, it just so, sounds horrible. Let's, let's finish on that positive note of getting COVID. Thank you for agreeing to do this. I think what you shared with our audience today was amazingly insightful.